I invite you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. We're going to read Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. I am actually going to read the last verse of chapter 5, too, because it connects to a number of the points that we will see in our passage. So we're going to read Galatians 5, 26 through chapter 6 to verse 5. Hear now the living and abiding Word of God. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, He deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and our Father, we do thank you that you have given us the opportunity to hear the word. We, we know that it is a privilege to hear your word, to read it, to have it in our possession. So give us a sense of anticipation and delight in the word, a desire to learn from it. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding, a spiritual understanding that not only grasps the grammatical meaning of these words, but also grasps the spiritual application to our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we begin our time in this chapter of Galatians, Galatians 6, I want to draw a picture of two different people for you, a a verbal sketch, as it were, of two different kinds of people, which I think is reflected in the two possibilities of our passage today. I'm going to draw these sketches of two different people in somewhat in extremes, just to illuminate my points. Uh, obviously, as complex people, it's not always so simple as simply one or the other, but you'll get my point as I give you this sketch. We had learned in chapter 5 of two lists, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And what I think Paul does in chapter 6 is to tell us now, well, what does the fruit of the Spirit show itself to do? If we have the fruit of the Spirit, what kind of behavior, what kind of activity will we be doing on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Whereas the works of the flesh is manifested in this conceit and this pride that's described in verses 3 through 5. So let's think about these two people. This is a sketch for you of two people in very different stages of maturity. They might both be true Christians, but they are in differing stages of maturity. There is, first of all, the first person who is exceedingly known in the church as exceedingly kind to others. They're they're just known for being kind. They get into very few conflicts with others in the church, and when they do encounter a conflict, they walk through it patiently, humbly, considering their own sins in the matter, and usually they find some resolution with their fellow Christians. They tend to talk more about God than themselves. They tend to talk more about their own need for the grace of God and Christ's mercy in their lives instead of talking so much about other people's sins. When there's a need in the body, this person is one of the first to help. They're right there on the front lines, ready 
to bear a burden. They are present to pray for, to practically help, to encourage those in the body of Christ. When this person is sinned against, their primary focus is not so much on the offense against them, but instead they are compassionately concerned for their fellow Christian in terms of the effect that that has upon their fellow brother or sister, and they desire to help them. They, they don't want to get caught in the same sin. They want to restore. They want to see relationships brought back together. And they tend not to give way to harshness or pride or sinful anger themselves in the process. Their focus is first and foremost on the glory of God and the restoration of their brother or sister. That's the first person. Now here's the second person. This person spends much of their time thinking about others in the church in comparison with themselves. Their thinking about others is not because they are as much concerned for others in terms of wanting to help and to love, but more so as points of comparison for themselves. They're very concerned about how others treat them. They have a heightened sensitivity to the ways in which people sin against them frequently. They tend to draw negative judgments about others, and they're usually thinking that other people are drawing negative judgments about them, ironically. They tend to envy other people, and it hurts when others are praised or affirmed in the body and they're not, because it's a commentary on them not being praised. They tend to view sin on a horizontal plane, subconsciously or consciously. It's always a matter of who's more a sinner than the other person. And because they view things on a horizontal plane of comparison, they tend to uh, view others around them as worse than themselves. They might rate themselves as an A-, minus, since nobody's perfect after all. But others around them tend to get D-minuses or Fs in terms of the evaluation that this person brings. And since this person is frequently concerned about themselves in relation to others, they don't think much about serving. It's not so much that they say, I'm not going to serve, but rather they, they don't even think about it. There's such a self-orientation, a a selfishness that is subconscious and kind of rooted in their nature that it does not occur to them to bear the burdens of others. Now, these are two sketches, and as I mentioned, these are drawn in extremes. We, of course, uh, will fall into either one of these potential situations at any point. We're not perfect. My point being that the more we mature the more that we grow in the fruit of the Spirit by God's working, increasingly we'll be the person of the first sketch and less so the person of the second sketch. It's a process. It's not simply an either-or. As you know, uh, there are times in which we are going to fall into either one of these categories. But what I want those sketches to do for us as we look at this passage is to think about what spiritual maturity looks like. What does it mean to be a spiritual man or a spiritual woman in the context of the church. So we're going to look at three topics today in our passage. The first is gentle restoration, verse 1. The second is bearing one another's burdens, which is verse 2. And then the third topic is how pride destroys Christian service. I'll explain how I get there from verses 3 through 5 once we come to that point. Let's begin, though, with verse 1, with gentle restoration. 
Let me read verse 1 for us again. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. This makes sense to follow from the list of the fruit of the Spirit, because what was one of the fruit of the Spirit? Gentleness. So if we are going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, we will be those who are able to restore gently sinners and who are also saints who go wayward in the body of Christ will be there to help. Now this is a very precious thing that we believe in restoration of those who fall into trespasses. As Christians, we confess the Apostles' Creed frequently here in our church, and in that creed there is contained a most precious phrase. I hope it is precious to you. I hope it is not taken for granted by you. That phrase is the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Is that precious to you? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I hope that that belief has not grown so familiar in your mind that you fail to grasp how great a thing it is that God forgives our sins through Christ. Christians are those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We are those who have been forgiven much. We've committed many sins against the Holy God. And as we heard in the Catechism just a moment ago, we daily increase our debt. But by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, all our sins are washed away. We are declared righteous in the sight of God. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5 expresses this truth, it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses against them. So this is the gospel we believe in, isn't it? We talk about these things. We celebrate these things. We talk about them every week. What does it mean then, if we believe these things, what will it mean for our relationships in the church? If we are the community of the forgiven ones, then by necessity we must be the community of the forgiving ones. The restoring ones. God restores us through Christ. We assist restoring others. And children, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, The church is a place where sinners are forgiven and restored to spiritual health. This is what we do here at Reformation Church. We we receive the forgiveness of God. We receive the restoration of God. We are restored to spiritual health. And we assist, we are used by God as instruments in his hands to help restore others. You cannot believe in the gospel of Christ, but then have no place for restoring sinners. Are you, it would be such a contradiction. It would be something like saying, I'm the only one Jesus restores. Nobody else can be restored. Now, nobody probably believes that literally, specifically, but what does our behavior reflect? Are we restorative people? Are we forgiving people? Are we seeking out uh, sinners that are wayward in order to be used by God to help bring them back? And what this means then is that when our brother or sister fall into sin, which is what this passage obviously assumes will happen from time to time, we are to be those who have a mindset of spiritual paramedics. We, we run to the scene. We are ready to help whatever the need is at that point. We don't run away. We run towards to help. There's a, a variety of responses to what we can do when people sin in our community. 
a variety of bad responses. One would be just to ignore people's sins. We don't, even, we don't care enough to say anything about them. Granted, it takes wisdom to know when to confront on what sin. I, gra- I grant that. But sometimes we just won't even talk about it. And we're not loving someone as a result of that because maybe it is the elephant in the room that needs to be dealt with and you need to love your brother or sister. You need to talk about it. So that's one thing. You could ignore people's sins. Or you could act in a harsh manner towards sinners whose sins particularly offend us or shock us. Just be very harsh with them. We could run away. We could stay as far away as possible. Uh, The Pharisees, that was their theory of holiness, of course, as you recall. Their theory was that if you just keep a distance, you will not be defiled by sinners around you. And that's why they so disliked Jesus eating with the tax collectors and the Uh, spending time with the prostitutes, ministering to them. Of course, Jesus never justified any of their behaviors. He was calling them to repentance. He was the great physician. He was healing and restoring sinners. But we have to think about what is our response to sin in our community? How do we address it when we see it? Whether it's the the thing that becomes public, whether it's the thing that is uh, private in nature, how do we restore sinners? Well, Paul gives us these instructions in verse 1, and I want to break it down into three parts so that we can parse this out and understand its application. First, he addresses those who are spiritual, you who are spiritual. Secondly, we need to look at what does the word restore mean? What, What does this involve? And then the third is the caution. Paul tells us, even as you do this, watch out. You could be tempted in the very process. So let's look at each of those. We begin with... You who are spiritual. Who does Paul have in mind? I think the obvious answer, based on all that we've learned in Galatians, is the spiritual person is the person that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. It's very simple. And in fact, Galatians and Romans and other parts of the New Testament teach us quite clearly that every true Christian has the Holy Spirit of God. No exceptions. Now, I, I, I believe that the Bible teaches that there's varying levels of spirit filling. We can be increasingly filled with the Spirit. We can mature in the Spirit. We can manifest more or less of the fruit of the Spirit. And what I think Paul has in mind is he's exhorting us to all, all be those. Everybody in the church should be one who has the ability to restore because we all have the Spirit of God. Now, some are better equipped than others, I grant that, because some are more mature than others. Who is the most well-equipped person to restore wayward sinners? Is it the person who has a master's degree in counseling? Is it the one who has studied psychology and human behavior in great detail? Is it the person who has read a hundred books on peacemaking, conflict resolution, and dealing with common sinful behaviors? As I list those, you might think, well, some of those could be helpful. And indeed, they could be. Reading a hundred of books on such things might be helpful from a knowledge standpoint. Uh, Those with uh, counseling uh, expertise, that is a blessing, that is helpful. It may be a very useful tool for dealing with certain issues. But my point is that as Paul presents this, as he speaks about restoring sinners, he provides one qualification that is the most important. And it is 
to be a spiritual person. It is the person that is mature in the grace of God. It is the person manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. The one who is the most mature will be the one who is most capable at restoring sinners. It's the person who's full of love. The one who exudes joy. The one who knows the peace of God and is a peacemaker. One who shows kindness to all. One who does good for others. One who's faithful in their commitments. A person of their word. One who is gentle. One who has mastery of their own spirit. And see, I just listed all the fruit of the spirit. What I'm saying is, that is the person who is most capable of helping restore in the body of Christ. And to the degree that you or I lack the fruit of the Spirit, to the degree that we are immature, we are not as capable as we could be in restoring sinners and in helping those that have fallen into a trespass. Because we'll lack self-control, we'll respond wrongly, we'll lack love, so we won't express love. We, we, won't, we won't be gentle. Perhaps we will not be faithful in the things that we say. We need the fruit of the Spirit to restore And so if you want to be one of those who aspires to do Galatians 6.1, which all of us should aspire to this since it's the command of Scripture, I exhort us to seek the fruit of the Spirit, to grow and mature in the grace of God. This is the thing you need above all. And certainly learn about counseling, certainly get a certificate with Peacemaker uh, Ministries. You might learn about these things, you might read 10 books, that's all good. However, if you lack the fruit of the Spirit you're not going to be very much good in restoring those that have fallen into a trespass. Children, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, the person who is most able to help restore sinners are those with abundant spiritual fruit in their lives. So we see that. The spiritual man, the spiritual woman is able, full of the Holy Spirit of God, to then restore Now we're told also that there's a particular manner in which we must do this work. If we're going to restore someone, we need to do it with a spirit of gentleness. And we need to do it as a restorative act. So what does this word restore mean? Well, if you look at this verb uh, in different parts of the New Testament or in different parts of Greek literature, you find uh, different very practical uses of the word. One example in the New Testament is uh, for the mending of nets. For example, when it talks about uh, John and uh, the disciples, they're mending their nets on the Sea of Galilee. That's the same verb here. It's fixing something. It's bringing something back together that has been ripped apart. Also, the word was used in the medical literature uh, sometimes for setting a bone. So if a bone was broken or mis- had been uh, displaced, the idea of this verb was to put the bone and set it back to where it needed to be. So if you apply that spiritually, the idea is that sinners who have fallen into a trespass are injured by that sin. They have hurt themselves, and we are to come along and we are to help in that process of restoration, guiding them to the grace of God, uh, perhaps giving them wise counsel in response to the situation. And so let's, let's go with the illustration of a broken arm for a moment as we think about restoration. So you have your friend. Your friend has a broken bone. There's a bone sticking out. Would it be loving to just ignore it? Not say anything about it? It's kind of glaringly obvious, perhaps, if there's a broken bone like this. Something needs to be done about this. There needs to be some restoration. There needs to be some healing. 
On the other hand, you, you might not approach it very well. You might look at that, that broken bone and you say, I know how to fix that. And you get your hammer and you get your saw out and you say, I'm going to get that bone where it needs to be fast, efficiently. And so you go to work on that broken bone as vigorously as you can, but what did you lack? You lacked gentleness. You lack skillfulness. Now, if if somebody has got a broken bone, they really would appreciate an experienced doctor setting that bone correctly, not just some amateur. An amateur would be somebody that's motivated by the works of the flesh. They're not going to do very good in setting that bone. You want a spiritual doctor. Somebody's got some wisdom and skill and gentleness to help get that bone set straight again. You could actually hurt your fellow Christian and trying to set that bone if you don't do it right. You may not approach them gently. You didn't perhaps approach them skillfully. Perhaps you worsened the injury with what you tried to do. It's possible. You could make things worse. Not just any approach will do for restoring wayward sinners. It requires spiritual skillfulness, but the word that is particularly focused upon here is gentleness. Why is that? Why is gentleness so important? Well, we've seen that it's a fruit of the Spirit, so we know that. But how did Christ restore sinners? We know that when it came to proud people, defiant people like the Pharisees, he was rather unsparing in his words. They required rather severe words of rebuke. But when it came to those that had been humbled, they were in a humble place, they, they saw their need for the, the grace of God, Jesus was very gentle with them. He doesn't break the, the smoking flax. He doesn't quench the, the, the wick that is just barely burning. He, he is gentle in his approach to wayward sinners. And so we have to ask ourselves if we have sought to do this, if we sought to restore, am I given to excessive and hurtful behavior? Am I harsh in my approach and my attempts to restore? You have to know the person that's before you. You have to have wisdom to know what they need. And if you are a spiritual person, you're going to have some discernment of these things. You'll know, does this person need a a stronger rebuke? Does this person need a gentle word of affirmation concerning the mercy of God? What do they need right now? And what will help us is recognizing how God has been merciful to us. We need to remember how God has restored us if we would rightly restore others. We'll get to that in just a moment, so I'll, get, I'll come back to that. Let's consider the warning Paul gives. He says, watch out lest you also be tempted. If your brother has fallen into a pit somewhere, and you go, you lean over the pit, you, you throw a rope down into the hole and you lose your footing and you fall in to the same pit, you wouldn't be very much good for your brother at that point, would you? You're, you're stuck in the same pit. You, you both need help now. And that, that can indeed happen in the process of restoration. You, you could actually sin the same sin that they did in the attempt to restore them. I don't think it's limited to committing the same sin. I think the idea here is that you could commit other sins in the process of trying to restore somebody. You could be tempted, you could get caught in a snare in the process of trying to help extract someone from that. And since I have become a father, it has really amazed me how often Galatians 6.1 is useful in parenting. 
Before I was a father, I just thought of this verse as like, oh, you just do that with adults in the church. It's like got to be the only context for this, right? It was just my mindset for some reason. But this is so relevant in the context of parenting. Here I am as a father. I have two children. They're fighting. There's anger. And so I try to get into the middle. I'm going to restore wayward sinners. But what happens is that I can and have at times become angry in the process of trying to restore two angry children because they're not listening to me. How ironic that I violated Galatians 6.1, or I mean, I was attempting to apply Galatians 6.1, but I was tempted. I did not watch out. Have you seen this before? You're seeking to restore things with someone. Perhaps the wayward sinner is the person that sinned against you, making it all the more difficult, and, and you're trying to restore and work through things, but before you know it, you're doing the very same verbal approaches that they are using. You're falling into the same fleshly traps of communication, You did not watch, lest you also be tempted. And at root, what this warning means is that we need to have a humble consideration of ourselves as we go into that process. We have to have an awareness of our weakness in doing these things. You need to recognize that you too are susceptible to sin in general. It may not be the same sin as much, perhaps, But you need to have an awareness and a humility concerning your past sins, as well as any present weaknesses that you have. That will help you to restore people. If you come with that humble, looking-to-yourself approach, especially if you haven't repented of the same sin that you're trying to restore somebody, and how contradictory and ridiculous you'd be violating Matthew 7, verse 1. You would be uh, you, well, you would be, you would be ignoring the, uh, the, the beam that's in your eye when you're trying to remove specks. Now let's go back to our bone-setting illustration for a moment. If, if, what if you in the past had experienced three different major bone fractures? It'd be really hard. Some of you have maybe gone through things like that. You would be very thankful that in all of those different bone fractures that you had had a skillful doctor that had helped set the bone right and had helped you through the healing process, you would be very appreciative of that kind of skill and gentleness that a wise doctor would bring. And that would help you because you would remember what your bone breaking felt like. You'd remember what it was like to be in such a position. And so you'd come into the situation with a sense of compassion, with a sense of loving concern. You'd want to make sure that that bone gets set well. You don't want to take the hammer and saw approach. You know that that's not going to help. And from a spiritual standpoint, what that means is remembering how many times we've been restored. How many times God has forgiven us? How many times perhaps somebody in our life helped to guide us in the right way? You you don't want to forget those things, brothers and sisters, if you're going to be good at restoring others. You need to remember your restoration, your rescue. And so we go on here to verse 2, the the next application Paul gives us. We need to be in the, the business of restoration. We also need to be in the business of bearing one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the way that we walk in the footsteps of our Savior. Paul Paul says that we fulfill the law of Christ by bearing burdens. Now why does he mention the law here, I I would ask? Well, you know that Galatians is all about the law. It's not just about the law, but the law is a significant topic in Galatians. We spent many 
uh, messages seeking to understand what Paul was getting at as he talked about the law of God. We remember that there were right and wrong uses of God's law. The wrong use, of course, is to try to scale your way to heaven by law-keeping and by external rituals, which is a way just to receive the curses of God. Since we cannot do that, we cannot keep the law. We learn that the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. It's a schoolmaster, a disciplinarian to help us see our sin and then to drive us to the Savior. But here, Paul speaks about the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ is not in contradiction with Old Testament law by any means. The Old Testament law talked about helping people in need and loving and so forth. But Jesus exampled for us in the very best way, the ultimate way, what it means to bear burdens, more than any Old Testament saint or Old Testament law could show us. What did our Lord do for us? He he bore the burden that we could not bear. That's what we heard in the catechism earlier. We can't do it. We, We daily increase our debt. He carried the heavy load of sin upon his shoulders. Isaiah 53 uses the same language. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. This is our Lord Jesus. He is the preeminent burden bearer. He bears the burden that none of us can bear for one another. None of us can bear each other's sins for one another. And so if our Lord Jesus Christ bore the heaviest burden ever, it would not be fitting that his servants don't bear any burdens. We are to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. Not not that we can carry the burden of sin. We know that very well. But there are things that we can carry for one another. The idea of this word burden, it's something heavy. It's something that your fellow Christian is struggling to carry on their own. They have this this big weight upon their back, this 200-pound weight that they're trying to walk with, but it's too heavy for them on their own. And you have been put into their life as a fellow Christian to help them. That is your role. That is one of the reasons that you and I do not live the Christian life alone. Wandering through the wilderness of this present evil age, completely solitary, without any companionship, bearing heavy loads. That's not what God has called us to. He's given us the fellowship of the saints. You are not meant to live the Christian life alone. And if you're humble and if you're honest, you know that you can't bear all those burdens on your own very well at all. And kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, Christians help other Christians carry heavy loads. Now, what burdens does Paul have in mind? He doesn't specify them here, but what are burdens that we bear for one another? Well, if we connect verse 2 to the immediate context of verse 1, we could say, in a sense, that when someone has fallen into a trespass, that we're bearing the burden of the restoration process, we're helping them work through that. That, That's heavy, that's difficult, it involves long-suffering to restore, and that involves a patient and gentle restoration. But I don't think we need to restrict the word to that uh, situation. Bearing burdens takes all different kinds of forms in the Christian life. When somebody is in the midst of some difficult affliction, some suffering, 
we don't have the ability to remove all the afflictions. We wish we could, right? We wish we could come in and just change everything and remove the affliction instantaneously, but we can't do that. But there are some things that we can do. When someone is enduring a medical trial, we can, we can come in, we can help, we can weep with those who weep if that's where they're at. We can visit, we can pray for them, we can bring a meal, we can relieve burdens through that loving care. If someone is going through financial difficulty, they're not making ends meet as well, they're, they're in a hard time in that regard, we can be those who come alongside and share generously and help them with those practical needs. As 1 John 3 says, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us love not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we can help in that way. We also bear burdens by bearing with the weaknesses of one another. Those weaknesses can be physical in nature. Uh, somebody, perhaps, that's not able to, to walk. How would we help them? How would we assist them as they enter into the worship of the Lord? Sometimes we're dealing with the weaknesses of others, the immaturities of others. Sometimes we're dealing with the doctrinal immaturities of others, uh, different perspectives. And in all of this, we are to fulfill the command of Romans 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And often we have to remember that we're not as strong as we think, since we tend to put ourselves in the strong category when we read verses like that. And so we need long-suffering to bear burdens, because burdens by definition are heavy. You try to carry 150 pounds a long distance, you get tired. You might complain about bearing that burden. You might be frustrated that somebody has the burden to begin with so that you actually have to help with it. But this is our calling. The fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. And if we would walk in the footsteps of Jesus in a much, much smaller way, we will bear burdens. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his excellent book on community life together, we sometimes have quoted from it over the years, he speaks about this matter of bearing burdens. He points us to the work of Christ once again as we contemplate these things. He says, God bore the burdens of men in the body of Jesus Christ, but he bore them as a mother carries her child as a shepherd enfolds the lost lamb that has been found. In bearing with men, God maintained fellowship with them. He's saying that God dealt and put up with us to save us through Christ. He goes on, It is the law of Christ that was fulfilled in the cross, and Christians must share in this law. They must suffer their brethren, literally sometimes, suffer with their brethren and suffer from their brethren. But what is more important now, he says, now that the law of Christ has been fulfilled, he says, we can actually bear one another's burdens. He speaks to our ability that we've been enabled to carry these burdens because of God's enabling grace, because of the work of Christ. Now, friend, I would ask you, what burden have you helped carry for someone recently? Can you remember bearing that burden? What was it that you, what heavy load did you bear in assisting your brother or sister in Christ? Have you relieved someone of a heavy weight 
of affliction or of suffering or of immaturity. Let's consider this question as we go into the week ahead. This is our calling. This is Christian Life 101, is bearing burdens. So we, we need to be watching for these things, looking for the opportunities to do so. Now we go to the last portion of our passage, verses 3 through 5. And I summarize this as how pride destroys Christian service. That particular meaning may not be self-evident, but I want to explain to you why I think that that is the connection that Paul is bringing out for us. Look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. And you remember... Chapter 5, verse 26, we read it. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So he's giving us these contrasts. He's saying again, there's these two different ways of life. You could be a conceited person that is full of thoughts of yourself, or you could be somebody that restores gently, that carries heavy loads for people. These are two very different ways. They don't go together well. You can't do both very well. Restoring one another and bearing burdens is others-oriented by definition, right? You have to be thinking about other people to do any of that kind of thing. But if you're conceited, if you are thinking you're something when you're nothing, you're not going to think about restoring others and bearing burdens. It is the difference between a life of selfishness versus a life of selflessness, Paul is warning against thinking too highly of ourselves. He's saying if you think you're something when you're nothing, you're going to deceive yourself. Now, this, this comes by, again, comparing. It's in the comparisons game that we can start to think that we're something. Because the moment we lift up our eyes to the living God, the holy God, we must say, like with Isaiah, I am undone. Woe is me. But as long as you're thinking about other people, you can say, I'm something. I'm, I'm really important here. And we start looking out for number one in our thinking about things. But of course, if we're Christians, we're not number one. Jesus is number one. Jesus' interests are number one. Now, how do these things connect? How is this relevant for Paul to bring out? Well, I found this particular comment by a, a Lutheran brother. He, I think he really nailed the meaning and relevance of these verses in connection with what we've read. Listen to what he says. This is Richard Lenski. He says, Self-satisfied, such a man thinks he is something and needs no help from his brethren in bearing any burdens he may have. He himself is capable enough. Thus also he will have no heart for his burdened brethren. For what makes us tender and helpful, meek and kindly towards others is the realization that we ourselves are nothing and that we too need our brethren. Do you see the connection there? As long as we don't think we need anything because we're, we're good, we're, we're strong on our own and we don't need help carrying anything, we're not going to be thinking about helping others. When given to conceit, we are not seeing that apart from the grace of God, we are nothing. 
And yes, indeed, God has made of us something, something glorious because of his promises and our inheritance and our union with Christ. But apart from those things which God has given as a gift, we are nothing. We've talked about our spiritual inability to do anything apart from the grace of God. And here's a vital test for your love for others. Is your proud thinking about yourself keeping you from serving others? Because you're predominantly concerned about yourself in relation to others. The, the, the world in your mind is revolving around you. Everybody's in relation to you. Rather than your mindset being Jesus is in the middle of your universe here and everything revolves around him and what he has called you to do. And this is a test of our Christian maturity. Are we spiritually minded people? One of the ways we'll demonstrate we are spiritually mature people is that we are not conceited people. It is a test of whether we're keeping in step with the marching orders of the Spirit of God, whether we're spiritually fruitful. Do we think to help others? Do we seek to restore? And children, this is the fourth point in your notes. Number four, proud people aren't very good at helping others. It's a very simple statement to perhaps memorize if you, uh, if you identify at times that that is what is getting in the way. Proud people aren't very helpful, they're not very good at helping others. There's this last phrase I want to deal with briefly, verse 5, it says, Each one shall bear his own load. You might look at this and it it almost seems like it's a contradictory statement to verse 2. Granted, the words are translated differently here and they are different words in the text. Because on one hand, verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens. And then verse 5 says, each will bear his own load. You're thinking, well, are we doing both still? How do these relate together? Well, I think what verse 5 is about is not the same thing that verse 2 is about. Verse 2 is about carrying burdens that our fellow Christian is having trouble carrying. They're heavy burdens. What verse 5 is about is about analyzing our own selves in light of God. It's about a sober self-examination of ourselves. And he's saying, basically, I think, your responsibility, your personal responsibility is what you need to be paying attention to, not what other people are doing or not doing. God holds you accountable for what you do. And in fact, it's in the future tense, each one shall bear his own load. Some have suggested that this is actually looking forward to that day of judgment when every one of us will give an account of ourselves to God for what we have done. That is described many times in the scriptures as something that is going to happen one day. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about wood, hay, and stubble versus gold, silver, and precious stones. And it says, everybody's work will be tested. And the idea here is that if you're starting to get puffed up about how great you are and how important you are, Paul is saying you need to sober up. You need to think about your own actions soberly in light of God's word. You need to consider your own behavior, your own load, your own responsibilities. Are you doing the things that God has called you to? If you do that, if you have that sober sense of yourself, you're going to be in a better place to help others around you. It again goes back fundamentally, verses 3 through 5 are all about making sure we have a sober understanding of ourselves, a humble understanding of ourselves, 
so that we will then be able to help others. So as we've made our way through Galatians, we've seen the importance and centrality of what, we've, what, what the Bible describes as union with Jesus Christ, this living connection. He, he is the vine. We are the branches. And all of what we see in Galatians 6 is just an outworking of that reality. Chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Galatians, in essence, tell us how to be like Jesus Christ. As those who are believers in Christ, our call is to imitate our Redeemer. Just as he bore the ultimate burden that we cannot bear, we bear lesser burdens in imitation of what he did. Just as he invited sinners to himself, telling them that his yoke is easy and his burden is light and that he is gentle and lowly, we are to be gentle and lowly in restoring others. Just as our Lord in humility descended from the heights of glory to the cross of deepest woe, we too are to imitate that pattern, forgetting ourselves, considering the needs of others, bearing burdens around us just as he did. These things are very basic, aren't they? These, like I said, this is the 101 of Christian community, but the, the vital test for us, the question for us, is do we do these things? This is the calling for us. Jesus, on the, the night of his betrayal, facing the, the suffering that was a coming and the hours that would follow, you remember that he washed his disciples' feet. John 13, I just want to read these words again to you because they, they, they help us to apply what we've heard today. It says, after Jesus had washed their feet in verse 14, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Hence, it would be unfitting that we don't do any foot washing. We're not above our master. And here's the, the, the last words I want you to contemplate as we close. Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. That is the call for us, brothers and sisters. Let us not love in word or talk only, but in deed and in truth. And when we do that, we're going to see a beautiful spiritual garden growing and growing by the power of the Holy Spirit, creating fruit amongst us. We're going to see restoration. We're going to see burdens being lifted. Let's pray that it would be so in our church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the gift of your Son, our Redeemer, and our Lord, and we thank you also for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the precious gift of the Spirit, to enable us to be spiritual people, to turn us from being fleshly, self-oriented people into loving servants of the Lord Jesus. We ask that you would make this passage a reality within us, that it would show itself in our church with much gentle restoration taking place, that we would learn more and more to bear one another's burdens, Lord, cleanse us from all pride that gets in the way of this kind of love. Make us to be a spiritual family that really does the things that are described here in Galatians 6. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.